gal pal Leah here. While you await the January 6th release of season two, I have for you a special live recording of a co-sponsored Gals Guide event. November 10th, Gals Guide collaborated with Starbase Indy and the Center for the Inquiry to host an event during the Spirit in Place Festival. The theme of 2019 was revolution slash evolution. And for our event, we had a panel to discuss the evolution of sci-fi fandom. Moderated by Lisa Meese, the CEO of Starbase Indie, the panel includes fantasy and horror author Maurice Broadus, Starbase Indie organizer Miranda Montooth, and yours truly. What follows is a lovely panel discussion on geeky creators, feeling like belonging to a community, and the power of sci-fi literature and media. We don't shy away from the hard stuff. We talk about white supremacists infiltrating geek spaces. We talk about trolling, the Hugo sad puppies, and problematic creators like H.P. Lovecraft. We had a few technical glitches during the audio, but most of the problems you're not going to notice until a ways into the recording. Matthew and I took the time to get the audio audio in the best shape as possible, as this is a very insightful conversation that I hope you'll all enjoy. So without further ado, this is the Evolution of Sci-Fi Fandom, nominated for an Award of Awesomeness. We are being recorded. We're going to possibly put this on the Gal's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. So just to warn everybody, anything you say may be immortalized forever on the interweb. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, I'm so excited for this event. It brings two of my worlds together. Um, I've been going to Starbase Indy for probably over a decade now. And I'm also on the advisory board for Center for Inquiry Indiana, which is where you're sitting right now. Uh, our, that the, our mission at the Center for Inquiry is to foster a secular society based on reason, science, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. And we sponsor all kinds of cool events, science discussions, philosophy discussions, book discussions, and also just casual uh, social events for like-minded people. Uh, most of our events are free and open to the public, so I invite everybody to come check out our events and hopefully have a good time. I always say it's the best conversation in Indianapolis but I'm biased. Uh, today's event is part of the Spirit and Place Festival, which is sponsored by the Lilly Endowment, Allen Whitehill Clouds Charitable Foundation, Bolson Group, the Paula Center, and IUPUI, and they've uh, established a hashtag. We're going to be talking about Twitter later, I'm sure, at this event. <laughs> hashtag, uh, <laughs> hashtag SPIndy is the hash. Tag, and they're going to give you, I think they gave you evaluations as you came in, so if you could please fill those out uh, at the end and give the, hand those to our wonderful uh, Spirit in Place volunteers at the end. Uh, in addition to Center for Inquiry Indiana, this uh, event has also been co-sponsored by Starbase Indy and Gal's Guide to the Galaxy, so we're very grateful uh, to them for providing us with our content, otherwise we would have no program today, <laughs> and that would be really horrible. Uh, and the only other thing I kind of wanted to add is, I mean, we're, you're about to meet this fantastic uh, panel of individuals, if you haven't already, and they all have their own individual opinions and unique points of view, and I just kind of wanted to point out that unless they specifically state otherwise, they do not claim to speak for an entire organization or an entire race of people, or an entire gender of people, or an entire sexual orientation of people. Uh, it may seem silly to point out, but it still happens from time to time, albeit an event, and oh, or, or geekdom as well. I should add geekdom to that list as well. It, 
it, it still happens sometimes. You'll have like one person of color or one woman or one transgender person in the room, and we'll all turn and say, so what do people of color think about that? And that's a lot of pressure to put on one person and really unfair and, uh, and, and also would bias our own point of view because we can't base that on just one person's point of view. So with all that out of the way, all the housekeeping stuff, I want to turn this over to Lisa Meese, our moderator, CEO of Starbase Indy. Please give Lisa a round of applause. Thank you all for being here. Let's see if I can get this mic to work so it's recording. Does that sound, can you hear me? Is this good? Okay. Um, so Starbase Indy, Started like 30 years ago as a fan-run Star Trek convention, and we rebranded a couple of years ago as a 501c3 organization dedicated to celebrating Star Trek's vision of the future through STEM education and humanitarianism. Because one of the things about Star Trek uh, is that it's a hopeful vision of the future. There are a lot of science fiction properties that I enjoy reading about and wouldn't want to go live there. Um, <laughs> whereas if you have space for me on the Enterprise, I'm ready to beam up right now. Um, so I'm going to ask each of my fantastic panelists to introduce themselves so I don't get anything wrong. <laughs> oh, for sure. Okay. Uh, so, uh, my name is Maurice Broadus. I uh, am here in town. I'm a science fiction writer. Basically, so I have three jobs. I'm a science fiction writer. I've been a, a writer for about 20 years now. Um, had uh, over a dozen novels published, uh, nearly 100 short stories published. Um, and so that's job number one. Job number two, I'm a, a middle school te uh, teacher over at uh, the Oaks Academy Middle School. Um, and then I also am adjusting my microphone. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, and then I'm also a community organizer. I work a lot with the Kepper Institute, uh, which is a grassroots organization that uh, does a lot of uh, community level work in the, in the neighborhoods. There you go. I'm taking note with the microphone. Uh, I am Dr. Leah Leach. I am the founder of Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we are a nonprofit based out of Noblesville, Indiana. Um, and we are actually looking to build the first women's history uh, library in the United States where you actually can go and check out books and learn about amazing women of history. Uh, we have 1,200 women's history books right now that are sitting in my front room. So we are looking <laughs> for a location to put these glorious books so people can check them out and we can host wonderful events just like this uh, and shine a spotlight on women's history. Uh, we also, while we're looking for a space, basically, we have a podcast. The podcast is kind of the interesting things that we find in the library. Uh, it's a group of four gal pals come together, and we each bring one cool thing to the table to talk about. There is margaritas involved, <laughs> so it's not a thesis statement. It's not reading the biography. It's, wasn't this really cool? Can you Yeah, and then the ridiculous things we say, we end up selling on t-shirts. So we have a lot of fun with it. I very much believe that history is a living thing, and there's a lot we can learn from it, but why shouldn't it be fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is me, and hopefully, if everything works right, uh, the show will be on the Gals Guide podcast uh, later, I want to say, in December. Buy me some time. Starbase Indy's coming up. <laughs> yes. Hi, I'm Miranda Montus. Um, I am an organizer for Starbase Indy. Uh, this year I'm handling guest relations, so um, I'm the one who brings in all the big stars. And um, we have uh, several good 
guest this year, so you should definitely come check it out. Um, I spend a lot of time at conventions, sci-fi conventions, and so I think a lot about what makes a convention fun, what do people want to hear, what do people want to see at a convention, um, and so that's that's my end to uh, science fiction and its evolution. So the, the description of this panel starts out with uh, reinforcing the common perception that a lot of the geeky things that we enjoy today were once the provenance of white males. This is in, in the description. But if you know much about history, you might notice that that's not a particularly historically accurate view of how these things have come to be. Um, so I might be a little... I have an affinity for, say, Star Trek conventions since I've run one, um, or helped run one. But the very first Star Trek convention was organized by a librarian uh, whose name was Sherna Comfort, who was female. Um, she also created the first modern fanzine. The, uh, the first well-known Star Trek convention was run by Joan Winston, Eileen Becker, and Elise Pines. So also not necessarily all-male. Um, the first science fiction novel it, it was often considered to be Frankenstein written by Mary Shelley. So some of these things that we have been told, especially in more recent years, might not be very historically accurate. So my question for my panelists is, who is your favorite early creator of some, in some kind of geeky field? We don't have to wait on me. I will buy you some time. Uh, in my teen years, I was like really obsessed with uh, uh, with George Lucas and Charlie Chaplin. Those were my two uh, main inspirations. I wanted to learn about their uh, evolution in their technical and creative uh, endeavors. I was like obsessed with the what I call Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Like I wanted to see the wizard pulling the strings. Uh, I wanted to know how Charlie Chaplin ate his own shoe in the movie. Like I had to know that. Uh, I wanted to know all the special effects in Star Wars. Like I had to know that. Uh, but it was not until I like later in life that I really kind of found the creator that that spoke to me and was kind of like you know a you know a, a mentor to me or at least uh, really opened my eyes uh, has anybody ever heard of Alice Guy Blanchet Right, okay, so I didn't, yes, okay, Debbie has, because I've told her about her many, many, many times. If I could be a cheerleader for somebody, it would be apparently this woman uh, from France who uh, moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey. Why would you do that? Uh, she did that because there was this new thing called motion pictures. Alice Guy Blanchet was working at the Goumont Film Company when this little motion picture camera came into the office, and they were filming people walking out of factories, and they were filming trains going by. They didn't know what to do with this technology. So on her lunch break, she asked if she could borrow it, and she just kind of ended up making the first narrative film of telling a story on film. Uh, she started a revolution of let's tell stories on this thing and moved to Fort Lee, New Jersey to then start making movies. Uh, she's credited with the first person of telling a film or telling story on film. She's the first to do sync sound, actually. She's credited with inventing the music video <laughs> of basically having somebody singing, like lip syncing, and then having music like attached to it. Of a, and then having like you know cut of scenes and stuff like that, uh, she created natural acting style. A lot of times you watch old silent films and they're very much pantomiming. She's like, let's be natural about it. So natural style acting. She had the largest movie studio in Fort Lee. She um, made sure it was all on the up and up on horseback. 
to make sure nobody was stealing anything. Um, and she was the first to actually have interracial cast in films as well. So Alice Guy Blanchet is like, uh, she became later in my life my, uh, my favorite early creator in a, in a geeky field. So, yes. The largest uh, movie studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Were there others? Yes. D.W. Griffith had one. Oh, okay. okay. So, Just check in. I know, exactly. Yes, there was. <laughs> D.W. Griffith had one, and uh, Cecil B. DeMille was an upstart sort of thing, but those two happened to move to a little place called Hollywood, and then once Hollywood won, everybody forgot about movies starting in Fort Lee, New Jersey. If you go there now, there's a beautiful grocery store and a sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was fun. <laughs> Did I buy either of you time? So favorite geek creator. Um, so, so I came up as a horror writer. I mean, when I first started off, I started off as a horror writer. So obviously my big influences then were like Stephen King. Well, actually, I started off as a, as a real strong Edgar Allan Poe fanatic uh, in high school. Yeah. And man, I was just so sad. <laughs> um, and so, so Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King formed like it helped form like part of my early voice as a writer, and as did uh, Neil Gaiman later on. As I was a, I'm also a huge comic book collector, um, much to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> We're actually preparing to move, and then she just remembered, yeah, you have twenty thousand books in the attic. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, so Neil Gaiman was an important part of uh, uh, form of my early voice, but then. It's like one of those things where, I mean, the hardest thing you can do, hardest thing to do as a, as a creative is to find your own distinct voice. And, uh, you know, and there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you're going to be the, the, the black Stephen King or the black Neil Gaiman. I'm just like, yeah, they're both still alive. So. <laughs> so I think we're good with having them in the place. Um, and so it wasn't until I discovered uh, two writers in particular, um, Octavia Butler and, and uh, Walter Mosley, um, who who was supposed to be here this weekend. I ain't gonna lie, I, that's where I was supposed to be this weekend. Uh, Walter Mosley was uh, supposed to be in town. Um, I'm sorry, okay. I'm, just, I'm gonna have a breakdown right now. I, I'm cool leaving, losing out to him. Okay, that's, that's right. entirely uh, understandable. Because he wrote a book called Futureland, um, which are these nine interconnected uh, sci-fi stories. And I mean, he's mostly known as a crime writer, but, and so this, this book kind of goes unnoticed on his resume, but this book was so impactful. Uh, on me as a writer, as me as a black creative especially, um, that, uh, I mean, it was pretty much transformative to see, oh wait, this is what I could do with my words. These are the stories I can tell. These are the characters I can write about, and it's okay. So, yeah, Walter Mosley would then be my, uh, my big key creator. All right. So when I heard this question, I thought about what geeky means and sort of took it in a speculative fiction area and the person that I was obsessed with for the longest time was Oscar Wilde mm -hmm. and definitely some speculative fiction there like um, that they're you know that no one's going to believe he's gay was pretty speculative <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I loved his wit right and um, and I just loved the idea of this genteel world where what was happening was behind the surface, behind the surface, and you really had to critically think about what he was saying and what was going on, and that kind of led me to a lot of other people that are uh, white males, cis hat white males, um, like Vonnegut and Joss Whedon and um, Orson Scott Card, mm -hmm. and all of these people 
you might notice, are somewhat problematic. <laughs> so thinking critically, complicated. yes, complicated <laughs> at the very least, yes. Um, the, the way that you think about how they portray women and the way that they portray um, people of color in their books, you really have to take a critical eye to that. Um, sort of like Heinlein, I think, a little bit, right? Um, so I think Oscar Wilde sort of started me on that track of looking deeper into work to try to find what they really were trying to say. So the, the current world of science fiction literature in particular is also full of women and people of color and people of different sexualities and genders. Um, this year's best novel, Hugo, the Hugo Awards are the Academy Awards for science fiction. Uh, they're given it at a thing called Worldcon every year. Um, and there uh, have been, we'll talk a little bit about how the journey they've been on over the last decade, because there has been a journey, and we'll get to that. Um, but this year's Hugo went, for the best novel, went to Mary Robinette Kowal for her Lady Astronaut book, which if you like science fiction at all, or you loved Hidden Figures, go find her book. It's Lady Astronaut is the name of the series, but I forget the titles. Calculating Stars, yeah, Calculating Stars. is the first one, yeah. Um, and for three years in a row, the best novel, Hugo, was run, won by N.K. Jemison, a woman of color, the first person to win three in a row. Um, so we, we've got some diversity coming into these fields very much currently. So who is your favorite current geeky creator? Mine has to be Mary Robin Eckwall, by the way, in case you couldn't tell by me talking about a book like that. <laughs> Mine happens to be N.K. Jemison, so it's all well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's it's been kind of a, I could like it's, I'm in a spot where I get to call both of those ladies friends. Oh, nice. So there's that. So you know, I'm, I'm kind of loving my life right now. <laughs> um, but uh, N.K. Jemison has just been so inspirational on a lot of different levels. Um, besides, uh, I mean. There've been talk. There've been chatter. I mean, this is this is where we are right now. So there's a lot of people who are like, we are out of the age of Tolkien and we're into the age of Jemison. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of talk that go that gets talked mm -hmm. bandied about when it comes to N.K. Jemison. Um, that being said, she's also um, uh, I hate to call her a role model because she hates for me to say that too. <laughs> uh, but she's not here. She's not here. Right. <laughs> she might hear the podcast. <laughs> right. That's, that's fair. <laughs> um, but the whole idea of Artist as activist yes. um, mm -hmm. is, is kind of important. I mean, there's a, a responsibility that I feel as a black creative mm -hmm. um, that, um, that it kind of uh, not really overshadows my work, but it, it, it's present. Mm -hmm. Where I have a responsibility that you know what, there haven't been a lot of images of us depicted in story, mm -hmm. frankly. Uh, my first series uh, was called The Knights of Breeding Court, which was a, an urban fantasy set here in Indianapolis, and it was. Uh, the King Arthur legend, except uh, told the guys of homeless teenagers and gang members, and so and I wrote this story because you know I'm a I'm a huge crime fan. Um, another reason I love Walter Mosley, um, but then after I, after that story came out, I was just like, you know what? There are an awful lot of stories of us as drug dealers or gang members. I don't need to write that story anymore, and so. Um, so I've made it a point to, in, in, in my very story since, it's like, all right, so now what are the other stories that we have room to tell? Um, and this is an ongoing conversation that, that we're having as black creatives, including with Nora and, and uh, oh, man, just about to go down the whole laundry list of all of us who just, just behind the scenes, we talk about you know, this responsibility to, to this canon of stories 
because you know what? Now's our now's our opportunity. What kind of stories can we be telling? I mean, literally, the story. Speaking of hopeful, the I, I just signed a three book deal with Tor, um, and I pitched the novel series as uh, Black Panther meets King of uh, Game of Thrones in space. <laughs> because how could you say that? Oh no! It, it basically sold on the spot and then went to auction. It was this crazy thing. So my Same. career has just been like. Ah, and the book is due in December, and I'm still, I'm literally, you know, between questions, I'm like, all right, chapter 16, all right. Um, so, but we have this opportunity, and, and one of the reasons I bring this up is because, as artists, as activists, is because um, we, we often don't take the room to dream, period, full stop. Um, and this has greatly impacted even my community work, where it's like, all right, so, because sometimes we get so caught up in the day-to-day, -day, how do we survive today? How do we survive this week? How do we get through? That we don't take the time to dream of what could be. And so with this novel, uh, I've, I've taken like six months just to dream about what we could be. Like, what does freedom look like? What does it feel like? What does yeah. it feel like? Mm -hmm. um, what, what are possibilities? We could redo certain systems. What would that look like? And just uh, this idea to dream about those possibilities uh, really informs who I am and, and what I do, and and the part of that is sparked by you know watching how uh, how Nora operates online and, and how she you know continues to. I mean, in a lot of ways, the uh, the trilogy that she won the Hugo's for was a pushback against all the pu pushback we have felt as Black creatives by you know suddenly feeling like, hey, well, how are we just intruding in this space? No, we aren't intruding in this space. We belong in this space, mm -hmm. but because of that constant pushback, that's the, this uh, the novel series is kind of. Uh, rooted in that, so to see her triumph in light of that, yeah, continues. I mean, I, I've watched her Hugo acceptance speech. I don't know how many times. <laughs> you ever go back and want to say, "Oh, I'll just leave it there." Go ahead. <laughs> I can actually, uh, I can dovetail on that actually, because there's um, Gina Davis has a saying that is, if uh, if she can see it, she can be it. So mm -hmm. if you can see it, you can be it. Um, and it's extremely important. And I think for that reason, um, my favorite current, my favorite current geeky creator is going to give me a lot of hate if I said this on Twitter. <laughs> but right now, it's actually Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy is in charge of Lucasfilm. She's in charge of the Star Wars movies right now. And a lot of people in geekdom are extremely mad with her for her choices and for the directors that have come and go. Uh, but one thing I have seen with Kathleen Kennedy in charge is that I have felt more represented in the Star Wars canon. I have seen more of my friends that I'm actually friends with represented in the Star Wars canon. And I grew up with the, the first three Star Wars movies, four, five, and six, <laughs> as being about friendship. Um, and then the other ones are about parents. <laughs> so, and how it really sucks to be parents, but it's really cool to be friends. <laughs> so these next ones are kind of dealing with what's the next evolution, right? So I love how they're taking that of you have this mix-match uh, group of friends uh, from all these different sides, and that's kind of what my life feels like. And so Kathleen Kennedy, she's not the director, she's not the writer, she's the producer, she's the puppet master, she's the one controlling all of the strings. And she has done what I will say is the Lord's work <laughs> of trying to please Star Wars fans. It's not easy. We are mean people, I will say for myself. But I really not all think, of us. I know, that's why I'm saying this, speaking for myself. 
some of us can be very, very mean. <laughs> also, may I just say, if uh, things we say up here don't qualify for hate on Twitter, we're doing this panel wrong. Right, I'm just saying. I'm just, <laughs> right, exactly. I've said the word Kathleen Kennedy and then positive. So, um, But no, watching her, watching her try to navigate this and knowing she can't lose her job so far in this is really kind of cool um, to see what uh, a strong female creative is standing by and how she is kind of being a buoy in an ocean, you know, she's anchored to the ground. Like, you can throw tons of waves at her and let's see what she's going to do. Um, and so to me, that is is fascinating to watch, and I would never trade places where they're right now, <laughs> ever. Right. Although, if we could put one thing out to the universe, yeah. it's that I really need to write a Lando Calrissian novel. Please, please, please. Let's, let's put that out. Yes, 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 please, please, please. please. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so my current favorite geeky creator is Rebecca Sugar, who is the creator of Steven Universe. Oh! Yeah. Sorry. There's a collective. Oh! <laughs> so, Rebecca Sugar is a non-binary uh, woman who tells stories about characters that they're not human, so they can be just about anything. And they are lesbian, and they are non-binary, and they are... F- family that's created out of people who love each other, not family that's by birth necessarily. Um, They encourage you to lots of things I think kids need to hear. They encourage you to mess up and it's okay um, as long as you tried something new. Um, And that was really my first there's a saying, um, if every pork chop were perfect, we wouldn't have hot dogs. (laughs) And that was (laughs) that was really like <laughs> moment with Steven Universe where I was like, no, I needed this show when I was a kid. Right. And yeah, exactly. Um, and then it just got better from there. You've got two characters who are, I mean, they're gems, right? So the, the whole idea is it's this little boy and he's being raised by crystal gems who are aliens from space. And um, the gems are not human and so therefore... Are they really women or are they not? But they certainly code as women. They wear dresses and and they have female female act, voice actors. So um, they definitely code as women. And you've got like this great love story between two of the characters. You've got um, characters who are clearly not coding as any gender in there, which is really nice to see. You've got Steven wearing dresses to perform on stage because that's the outfit that he had and it makes, it's no big deal for him to wear it. So there's just, it's really open and accepting and it is exactly the thing that I needed when I was a kid. Awesome. Um, So the, we've seen, this was a very, oh, Uplifting and inspiring, and now we're going to go down into the dark, scary places. So, warning. Um, we have seen modern organized white supremacists use gaming spaces and online communities to intentionally recruit kids. At the same time, a lot of the non-virtual spaces, like conventions, are on the leading edge of working to create intentionally welcoming diverse communities. So what do you make of this paradox, where some geeky activities are at the center of the white supremacist activity and recruiting, and others are leading the way in anti-harassment and inclusive spaces? Um, So I have a little bit of pushback. Um, I feel like online communities are vast. I mean, 
it's huge. There is absolutely a corner that is covered in white supremacy, <laughs> but it is a huge, vast world, just like meat space is huge and vast, and we have the same problems in those spaces that we have in meat space spaces. And so I don't, I don't know why some parts of the internet are toxic, just like I don't know why some parts of the non-virtual world are toxic, but I do know that anybody can be radicalized and they're using the same tactics to radicalize people online that they use in, in real space. So they use, they find people who feel that they're being persecuted and show them who to blame for that. And they teach them that, um, there, there's a, a YouTube video, actually, that goes through the process of radicalization, and they talk about um, how they find one person in the community, in that, in, in, in that community, and they point to that person because they said something that was a little wrong, and they turn on that person, and that helps build that group tighter and tighter so that it coalesces into this smaller organization, and then they move on and they do it somewhere else. And I feel like that happens in real space too. Does that does that eliminate this paradox where some spaces are pushing towards inclusivity and others are pushing sort of away from that and then backlashing? I don't know. Like I don't know that the gaming community really is pushing towards white supremacy. Um, there are like okay, so Blizzard is kind of a problem right now, but <laughs> Overwatch, for instance, is a community where hate speech is blocked out so that um, they've, they've got their AI trained so that if they hear you use racial epithets or things like that, then it just blocks out what you're saying and it pops up and says, I'm sorry, this player's having a tantrum right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so there, I know that the gaming community is moving in certain circles towards more inclusivity. There are games um, where if you treat online games where if you treat the non-binary characters as if they are binary, you can get blocked from that whole game. So it's something that it might be taking a little bit more time in that area, but it is definitely something that's happening. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting watching, because I actually tried mean conventions. <laughs> Say more about that. <laughs> well, so like I first, I went to my first, uh, first professional convention in 2002, the World Horror Convention. And uh, at that con, you could count the black folks at that con on one hand. Hang on, me, Chesha, Raph, Linda. Okay, you don't even need your whole hand. <laughs> right. um, of course, the four of us are still, still friends to this day. Actually, they're all gonna be the guests of honor. I do I run a convention called MoCon, and so my next MoCon is this upcoming May, and they are three of my guests of honors, as a matter of fact. Um, marking well, a lot of years in this business. Um, and so we, we came up in those spaces where it's just like, all right, it's just us, it's just us. All right, go ahead. Um, and so to watch the, how, how these convention spaces have changed has been interesting, it's been fraught, and it's been messy. Uh -huh. um, Folks aren't always as progressive as they think they are. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a con I'm thinking of right now who you know they they are noted for their progressiveness, but the whole idea of you know but even as they are progressive, they start to be dragged forward in in different areas. Like you know, hey, some of us black folks just want to be together. Well, you can't do that. That sounds racist. Like, 
Yeah. <laughs> what? Um, and so, so we've had to kind of drag them kicking and screaming into, hey, literally, we just want to have a space where we could just sit together. There's like, we're up to like five of us at this con. <laughs> yeah, can we just, we just want a space where we can just sit together and just be and just sort of heal and then just muddle through this whole thing together. Um, and they fought that kicking and screaming. Um, but then five, six years later, as it got out that, hey, no, there's spaces where we can get together and be okay at cons. Well, now there's like 50 of us coming to this con. So, and, and we get, we'll go, we do the con, but then we have these places where we can retreat to and just go, all right. <sighs> okay, now let's go back out. Um, and so, um, it, and, and it's, it's the journey of America in a lot of ways. Uh, it's messy, but, but we're, I see a lot of people trying. And uh, in the ways I can help that and support that, I will. But then, you know what, some of this toxic stuff in gaming, I'm just like, yeah, deuces, I'm out. Um, but as, on a positive note in gaming, I, uh, I was actually a consultant on the video game Watch Dogs 2. Cool. And they literally hired me because they were like, hey, we have a, we have a black lead character in, uh, in this video game. OK, great. We have an all-white writing room. <laughs> oh. I think I found your problem. Right. And I think I know what question's coming next. Right. They're like, go on. Would it be possible for you to come in? I'm like, say the words. Say the words. Make sure we got the black guy right. There we go. There we go. So, uh, I mean, so I see these little glimmers, but right now they're glimmers. And so, you know, any way I can go and just, you know, and I, and I took the job. Uh, and it was my first gaming job. Uh, and I saw that, and again, I talk about that responsibility I feel as a black creative. Well, my responsibility in that spot is to, all right, I got this door open. All right, everybody, I got the door open, let's go. We're all coming in now. And that, that's, that's, the job. that's the job, and that's the work that, that has to be done, and has to continue to be done. Yeah. I, I don't come from a, a gaming background too much, and um, uh, I do, I'm not a big, like, a lot of people place, so, like, even conventions, I only do, like, a few of them. <laughs> um, but I, I do come from knowing about the five basic needs, and the five basic needs is actually something that I learned uh, when I was a screenwriter, and the five basic needs uh, are survival, belonging, power, freedom, and fun. And it was outlined by Dr. William Glasser, and it's something that all storytelling usually takes one of these basic needs and it focuses on it. But the five basic needs, I think, is the paragraph. It's what brings those two unlikely foes together because they're both competing for survival, belonging, uh, freedom, power, and fun. And they can be elusive on whichever side you are. Um, the reason why I'm not surprised seeing any hate group infiltrate geek groups is because they kind of operate almost on the same what gets you in there. You feel like you belong to a group. You feel like you found your people. You feel like you're one of, and you feel powerful because you are in numbers. And so if you kind of look at it you know, side by side of what's intriguing about geekdom and what's exciting <laughs> about you know, hate groups, it's too utterly similar. And all you need is to be cast out of one group to want revenge on that group. And so if you are in geekdom 
and you are, you know, playing a game and all of a sudden, you know, you're not good enough for that game and you're getting hate on by, you know, your fellow tribe and somebody comes along saying, hey, you want revenge on them. I, you know what I mean? I know how to take them down. We control them. And you know what I mean? Things like that. That can be intriguing because once again, it's applying to belonging and power. And that's, that's where I think the paradox um, kind of is uh, on them. And it's, it's having a moral code um, is, is what kind of it comes down to. Because belonging to a group feels really, really good until it doesn't. You know what I mean? Until it's not within your own uh, core value sort of thing. Um, so it kind of goes back to, I guess, Hamlet, to thine own self be true. <laughs> um, so that's why it's a danger, because they really do intersect at a very, very dangerous point. Um, and to be mindful of that. Um, just a, 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 a follow-up first on one of the things that you said about uh, coming in to sort of fix that all-white writer's room. There's, I have some friends who do work in a thing called sensitivity reading, where someone will write a novel that has a character that isn't like them, and then they will read the novel. And they, uh, Marco Shiro was talking about a job that he had where they, it was a southern woman who was talking about the Greens, and the Greens were arugula which is not how greens work. <laughs> I mean, they're green, but <laughs> some of these, some, so some of the things you get wrong when you're not in a culture are, are kind of hilarious. Um, and it, it, there's also some evidence that some of the, specifically the Twitter hate on the Star Wars, yeah. the, the, the things that drove... Uh, uh, Rosemary off of Twitter. Some of these people right. were part of this sort of Russian infiltration of social media in the last couple mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. That this was a specific uh, tactic to drive a wedge into communities. Yeah. And so, um, I guess I don't exactly have a question, just if you have commentary on that or uh, anything to add to that that intentional division of these groups. Oh, um, oh yeah, go. The, you know the Josh Whedon thing? So, um, so Josh Whedon left Twitter um, after Avengers 2 came out. <laughs> I feel like there was also a, you know what I mean, a targeted attack sort of thing. So seeing something like all these negative reviews of how dare you destroy Avengers and all this stuff and be like, okay, fine, I'm out. And at one point, Josh Whedon was the king of the geek people. <laughs> uh, so it's like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, so it was almost like... Um, are the the leaders or the people that uh, people have as a figurehead can their voice can be removed, and that is like oh who else can we remove? Mm -hmm. And I think that's very dangerous because it can be you know the people on Star Wars it can be uh, directors of Avengers <laughs> and Marvel movies and things like that, but it can also be your friend who's picket you know and who's being picked on. Um, so it it has a, a lot of ramifications. And it is about silencing a voice. Um, and that's, yeah, that's the unfortunate part of it. So that's why I'll still say crazy things on Twitter. <laughs> Just in defiance. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, the, it also kind of harkens back to the whole uh, sad puppies movement. Yes. In, in, in genre. And, uh, and so, so not, not by, when I say sad puppies, you're probably not picturing what I'm intending. A, some bad branding, even for racists. <laughs> um, yeah. And so basically what, what had happened was is, uh, 
you know, come to find out there are a lot of minorities and women suddenly writing books. Well, we can't have that. <laughs> um, they're winning too many of our awards. And that was basically the underpinning of what started this thing called this Ad Puppies movement. Um, and so they were deliberately trying to attack and undermine the, the Hugo Awards um, in a very organized fashion. Because and, and this was the, and this would be the year that uh, Nora was up for the, her first book in the trilogy. Um, and it was a very concerted effort for them to just very cynically manipulate the, the actual voting process, just because women and minorities happen to be uh, right. And by by. <laughs> By us dominating, I think we've like won five awards. But whoa! <laughs> but you beat the founder of the Sad Puppies, and that made him very angry. It made, made him very angry. Right. He didn't yeah. win, so clearly it was rigged. Clearly it was rigged. Yeah. And so, and so there was this. I mean, there was this huge, ugly, divisive conversation. Not even really conversation. It's a shouting match uh, across genre for about a period of a year, and in the end, Nora still won. And then a bunch of, and then a lot of the awards got no awarded, because it's like, oh, there was no clear winner, no, and a lot of people just said because they rigged, literally rigged the ballot, so that it was like a lot of their, their writers, um, that were that filled up the slots, and so a lot of people just went, all right, well, we'll just have to vote no award. So it was like Nora, and I think two other categories won, and then a lot of people got no awards. Why? And, th and that dominated genre conversations for over a year. I mean, like, even Time Magazine picked up on what, what is going on in, in our sci-fi circles. Um, and this was right about the time Gabriel Gate was hot, too. Yeah, yeah, and so this was, oh, yeah. That was a great so, fun time. Not oh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So, and, and, and so now they're trying, so then Sad Puppies tried building this coalition directly with Gamergate. And so that was part of how they were able to get the actual numbers to, um, to, rig, this, to rig this vote. Um, so now it's like, oh, great, now all the races are joining forces. All right. And they still lost. <laughs> um, which is why, you know, Nora going on to win the award two more years was another part of that us reveling in, like, yes. And you know what? She deserved it. And let's not get past the fact that she deserved it. Right. There were no books close to hers that year, those years. She was doing next level writing. But all that now gets undermined. Because people are like, oh, well, you know, she only got it because, you know, affirmative action, blah, 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 which, you know, like I said, I've been in this 20 years. I've been affirm apparently an affirmative action writer for a long time. Every time I make the table of contents somewhere, it's due to affirmative action. Lord knows it can't because I wrote well, but this is what, this is what we're up against. But it's not going to stop us either. No, it's not. And that's one of the things that as I've watched this, as I watched this sort of unfold about half a decade ago, um, the, the Worldcon community really sort of stood up and said, this is not how we do things here. And they did things like uh, created scholarship programs to diversify Worldcon and get people there who didn't have the resources to be there otherwise. And, uh, you know, so there was this great pushback of, well, no, all of the, you know, if the awards aren't going to white men, then there's something wrong with the awards. And the rest of the community cut standing up and saying, no, our awards are fine. You, you should read the works because they're pretty freaking amazing. Um, and so it has made me really proud to be a part of that community. Um, and I wonder what else is going on in that community that you guys are aware of that you want to make sure people are seeing and hearing. Um, I'm not as familiar with it, so I bow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, I would say one of the things that I've noticed in the convention community is um, 
that it's the best place to get a queer theory education outside of university. There are tons of discussions about how this pop culture stuff affects the queer community, affects uh, feminism, and it really has moved, I think, to a strong discussion about progressive social issues. Yeah, though the, uh, the Sad Puppies thing actually came on the heels of uh, the World Fantasy Awards changing over, because mm-hmm. uh, it used to be that uh, for the World Fantasy Awards, if you if you won the award, well, you'd get this this award, and it was a, a bust of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Oh. <laughs> Not everyone in the room might know why that's okay. problematic. <laughs> so, so, so here's the thing. So like I said, I came up as a horror writer, and H.P. Lovecraft is like one of the pivotal figures in, in, in horror writing. Um, we, we, in a lot of ways, we work in, under, in, in his shadow. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> geek joke for geeks. Um, I think we might have a few in the audience. Right, right. So I, I know my, I know, yeah. um, um, And so, but so like even Stephen King is, you know, you know, you read a lot of his short stories. He does all these tributes back to Lovecraft. Well, Lovecraft was a virulent racist. Virulent. And we can talk about separating the artist from the art. But literally, that's what informed his art. Uh, his fear of, well, everybody, uh, <laughs> it kind of informs the universe that he kept creating. So, so when the award got, got won by uh, uh, Nettie Okorafor, she was really proud of this award. I mean, that, to be fair, I mean, this is kind of what we all work for. I mean, we, we want this sort of validation, well, A, in sales. I will take that over everything. <laughs> <laughs> but to be recognized by your peers or by your fans, it's also pretty, pretty good. Um, and so she had these mixed feelings of, hey, I've won this award, and now staring at me as I write is <laughs> <laughs> H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so then this, uh, got, uh, this conversation got picked up by Daniel Older, and, uh, and so he went on and, and started talking about it on Twitter, um, which led to all the trolls coming out to play for about a year, because then uh, World Fancy ended up changing the award and said, you know, it shouldn't be this figure. It should be something that symbolizes all stories. So they have switched to, again, it's a beautiful award, um, but it, it isn't a particular person. Um, and I bring that up because uh, there was a, I had, I was on an editing project. It was me, Daniel, and uh, Sylvia Marino, and, uh, and we had done a, a special issue called uh, People of Color Destroy Science Fiction. Yeah. <laughs> and by destroy, I meant, hey, we are, here we are. We're going to publish some stories. Right. That's how we destroyed it. Um, and we ended up doing a, a podcast together on, uh, for Wired Magazine. And this podcast is like 70 minutes long of us talking about our journeys as writers and what it means as creatives and blah, 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 blah. Uh, the interviewer brings up this Lovecraft thing. And so we talk about Lovecraft for like 10 minutes. 10 minutes out of 70. They post the podcast. You would have thought that was the only thing we had talked about the entire time. Because all the Lovecraft that's fans, all oh, that's all they heard. Mm-hmm. That is all they heard. And so next thing I know, I'm getting all these uh, Twitter comments about how I'm responsible for Trump's election. And I'm just like, what? My bad. I'll take the L, I guess. So, so that, that, these are kind of things that always are bubbling up you know, behind the scenes, as but we're in an age where a lot of this stuff is just being dragged into the light of like, come on, can we have some conversations? Do these awards need to be named after people? I mean, that might still be perfectly valid, or do we want to do something more symbolic so that 
that represents where we are now and how we want to move ahead. Because literally, we are the genre of imagination and looking forward. How about we do that across the board? <coughs> A very similar thing happened with the Campbell Award, with the Hugos. Yes. Uh, Joseph Campbell? Is it Joseph Campbell? No, no, no. It was, uh, um, sorry, <laughs> I, I, I just blanked on it, too. Literally. Uh, but he, I, it wasn't Joseph, so it's not. Okay. That, well, I got it wrong, and we don't right. know what it was. But the, the Campbell Award used to be the award for. John. John yeah. C. Campbell. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and the award is, what, the best new novel? The best. Uh, I think, but they, they have just removed his name from it. And uh, he was the editor of Amazing Stories. Mm -hmm. And so it's now like the Amazing Stories Award instead of being named after this person who had some some problematic views, things that, you know, were they okay when he was doing it? I don't know, maybe, but certainly they're not okay in today's uh, world. Um, and people thought they were okay back then. Maybe they probably weren't. But um, so... This problematic creators, there's a long history of that as we bring more things into the light and bring more viewpoints and more perspectives into the light. Um, but that doesn't mean that we didn't, I mean, I grew up on Heinlein. There's some issues there. <laughs> but it still informed uh, a lot of the baseline of my love of science fiction. So how do we manage, you know, creators that we now recognize have some undercurrents in their work that are, we'll just use the word problematic. Right. Um, I'll come at it from a women's history point of view. Um, uh, because um, one of our more popular episodes is about Coco Chanel. And Coco Chanel, um, you know, many people will know the name. It's on a handbag, it's on perfume, stuff like that. Um, but she was utterly complicated as well. Uh, during World War II, she may or may not been in cahoots with the Nazis, hence why she got to stay in Paris when a lot of people didn't get to stay in Paris. Um, and she might have had moments where she was anti-Semitic as well. Um, she's complicated. She's problematic in that. Does it change the fact that what Coco Chanel is famous for is getting women out of corsets, of the sporty, stylish, you know, physique, and the little black dress, and actually cosmetic jewelry, wearing fake jewels was something that she's like, I want to wear my jewels out, but I don't want them stolen. I'm going to make fake ones and encourage everybody else to wear lots and lots of fake ones. Um, so when we get to a, a person who is problematic, it's realizing none of us are perfect. We are 360 degrees. It's what can you learn? Even if it's this person had these beliefs, it reinforces I do not have those beliefs. It's still learning uh, from someone and it's looking, it's taking them apart. What do I relate to? What do I not relate to? How is this an opportunity for my own personal growth? Uh, by looking at the mistakes as well as the champions of another person. Um, so I come at it because I look at history. I never expect anybody to be perfect because it's impossible. <laughs> but I do look at not spotlighting and shining a light on those that there isn't a lot to learn except of what not to do. <laughs> There's plenty of, uh, of spotlight and effort to be put uh, on those stories that are far more positive and exciting. Yeah. I think it also has a little bit to do with the kind of art that they're doing and also mm -hmm. the ways that they're problematic. Like, 
reading something about Coco Chanel or wearing clothes inspired by her doesn't necessarily relate back to her problematic views. Right, right. As much as like Lovecraft was not just ra- not just racist because he was from a certain time, mm-hmm. but he was racist for his time. He was horribly racist. And so how much does that affect his work if you're reading his work and it's coming from how much his is mind? It intertwined. Yeah, yeah, it is intertwined. Mm-hmm. And then if you can get um, recommendations of people who have done what he's done, mm-hmm. but done it better or more responsibly, mm-hmm. then I think that's a better way to go. I've yeah. recently taken part in a conversation specifically about Lovecraft mm-hmm. and whether or not people should read Lovecraft and should you suggest that people read Lovecraft? Should you give a warning label before you have them read it? And I just think that there's not much that Lovecraft did that someone else hasn't done better. Better. Yeah. In the, how many years since? Right. right exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, he laid a foundation, but we've moved on from that foundation, and we don't necessarily need to revisit it. And yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> um, I'm going to revisit it. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and partly because he, he is a foundational figure in, in the history of the work that, we've, that we do. And so I'm, I'm, so I'm never going to be inspired without, well, you know what? Don't read that. No, because his books are still there. I've read them. I frankly think he's overrated, but mm-hmm. I've read them, and I've realized the, the, the importance in the canon uh, that he represents. That being said, it's like, now how would I approach an H.P. Lovecraft story? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's been bubbling around in the back of my head here lately. So even though I'm supposed to be writing the space trilogy, <laughs> there, I'm, I'm sure, and by sure I mean in February, I'm going to take a break, <laughs> and I'm going to write a novel that interrogates H.P. Lovecraft. And I'm going to go, what would H.P. Lovecraft, how would he really like to be remembered? I know, through the lens of hip-hop. <laughs> and I think, I think that's what we do with these stories. It's like, hey, you know what, let's revisit this stuff. Let's, you know, he wasn't a man of his, he wasn't a man for his time. I mean, even other races at the time were like, damn. <laughs> um, but to interrogate him through our modern lens. And let's really start continuing to cast some serious lights, some serious questions on who he was, what do those stories represent, how do we move forward from them? So I would like to take some questions from the audience, if we could. Hey, John. Yes, uh, I'm John Belden, and I uh, actually worked with, you know, I was chairman of a convention this last summer, and uh, so I, you know, I really feel a lot about this topic and about developing uh, the evolution. Oh, there's a camera? Okay. <laughs> Mostly the microphone we yeah. want you to talk to. Yeah. And no, I'm not Santa, but I know him. <laughs> I'll be working for him later. Anyway, um, well, one of the, the questions that came to mind of many, but I ramble, is uh, you, know, you mentioned, uh, Lisa, the, the dichotomy of how um, the uh, the haters kind of grow in cyberspace and online and online gaming, but on the other hand, in-person conventions that are opening up more uh, diversity in diverse spaces. And I think uh, one of the main reasons for that, and I think it got, kind of gives hope for for the future and for the evolution, is that uh, frankly, it's a lot easier to to hate online than in person. Okay. And you you go to conventions and 
you it's hard you know you you see a a person of color you see someone who is LGBTQ alphabet soup and you, you know you're having fun and they're having fun and you know, you you see that diversity in action and you see that they're not that different from you and that they embrace that same show or that same game or whatever that you do and uh, I think that's uh, that's a part of why you it's you you find more uh, diversity and more openness in the the real world setting and why it's it, it's kind of a, a, an element of hope because people want to go meet in person and then later they'll meet online and they remember oh, my electric friend is also queer but whatever <laughs> yeah so comments thoughts um, I think also some of it has to do with most of my experience is with uh, sci-fi literature conventions and I think people who read are more empathic and so that has something to do with it too um, and so not only do you see those people but you also spend some time inside their heads in books and so I think that helps in in literature cons yeah I think I just keep coming back to what you were saying about belonging yeah belonging is powerful mm -hmm. um, we all look for that place of belonging uh, when I hear people talk about like most of the sci-fi cons that have uh, been around for a while you know how do they describe it? it's like oh, it's like a family reunion mm -hmm. Geek family Thanksgiving stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 exactly. <laughs> Thanks for setting that up. No, no problem. Thank you very much. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> but but that's what you want. You want that uh, the commonality of family, that baseline of what do we have? We might not have blood, but we have geekness in common. That is our blood. That is in a lot of ways, it's our lifeblood. Um, and so that's what unites us. And so the uh, so what we want to do moving forward, though, is be proactive about family. We want to always be growing the family. We want to be inviting in more family. Yeah, I would say um, even on that, um, I I have uh, friends and family who are not geeks. I know. Surprise, surprise. What? <laughs> have you guys all seen, or has anybody seen the? The, the video, video that's right before the Gen Con doors open. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. There's they they show it many many years. I don't know how many years they have been showing it, but uh, for Gen Con, it's in Indianapolis. It's the largest gaming convention, um, and for the opening day, people wait in front of the in front of the vendor room doors, and it's a it's a herd of people. It's it's a lot of people, <laughs> and they always have this video where it's just the doors open and this floodgate of people uh, go in, and those like. Five ten seconds, in just in nights in geeks, yes, <laughs> because it's belonging and it's power and it's there's lots of us and we're all gonna do this thing that we love and we're gonna do it together. That's kind of the feeling of geekdom uh, in an image to me that you can search on YouTube. <laughs> the running of the geeks. Exactly, like, yes. <laughs> yes, and some of them might die. From above. Correct. Yeah, I love my people. Isn't that body. fun? Yes. Yeah. No geeks were harmed in the creation. <laughs> also, if the idea of, also, if the idea of 65,000 people pressed up against each other, worries you, Starbase Indians, like that, we're much smaller. It's, right. safer. it's safer at the fan-run conventions. Far more my style. Yeah. I have a question. Excellent. Okay, so, um, 
you know, we, you know, we all, all the different groups that we all belong to, we put a lot of work and effort into putting together these events or these movements or rallies or whatever they may be. What are some things that that groups do that make people feel unwelcome or that they can't come to that event? Because we all want people to come to our events, and then we're like, oh, why didn't people show up? So what are some things that we do that maybe put people off or make pe- people feel like, oh, that's not my people at that group? And then also, what are some things that we can do to encourage more people to come to those events? <laughs> oh, Paula's got an idea. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so having attended local sci-fi conventions for over 30 years, and I used to be a vendor, and that is how I felt, or made myself feel welcome was by, and I think I've said this before, is by making things and selling things to people who like them, who were different than me, but they came to my booth to buy them. And that is how I found my space and felt safe, because it was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm the only brown person in this building, not just at the convention, but at the building. So the biggest problem I would have was with fantasy. It was like, for some reason, the uh, white males just wouldn't believe that there could be people of color in fantasy. It's like, you just don't belong here. Get out. You know, go away. And the more I persisted, the more I felt kind of strange. It's like, why am I trying so hard to belong where I'm being told I don't belong, and then just kind of hit me because oh, this is fun, and I like to dress up, and, I like, and I'm good at this, and I can speak with English accent if I want to, and if I don't, you know, and I can do whatever. Um, and it was a sense of freedom. So all those five things, yeah, absolutely powerful, yeah, absolutely powerful. So what can be done to to um, invite, make sure people can see themselves. You know, make sure that people of color can see themselves and LGBTQT can see themselves, and be in the. Um, um, that just makes it. Oh, I, I I can go there because they obviously have people like me there, and that's a big deal still even. And Indianapolis is very conservative, so it's not just how you feel at the convention; it's how you feel all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're brown or you're different. It's a, it's like you need somewhere to belong. So if I can see myself, then I get up my courage. And that's another thing I wanted to say. When you see a brown person at one of these conventions, a person of color, they are brave. It's like they have actually entered this space with no real knowledge that there's going to be anybody else like them. So they do it because they love the genre and because they want to. They just want to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to have fun? So I think I, I hope I answered it. I don't know. <laughs> so what other thoughts does the panel have about it? Like I said, I run a, a writer's conference. Um, next year will be the 13th year I've run it. We have about 50 to 100 folks there. And uh, and so I think through, like, what are the disinviters? That's the, you know, the, you know what, what, keeps pe- what could keep people from coming? And then how do I overcome those? Um, and, and that's across the board. And so, you know, I think through, like, well, I think it comes down to intentionality. I'm very intentional 
And so when I start putting together my, my guest list, I'm very intentional about who are my guests of honor. Um, because that's going to be the face of the event. And if that face is all white and male, that's going to be a signal to people, flat out. That's, a, that's your first disinviter right there. So mine aren't. So you, you know full, uh, somewhere in there, you will find yourself among my guests from the beginning. Um, and then the other thing I try to do, I'm an introvert. I know that probably don't have to listen to And so, you know, so, but I want this con to be this relational family reunion type vibe. And conversations are hard to start. So I provide food. Because conversations go down a lot easier when you're around a dinner, or when you're around a table and you're face to face and we're eating, we have drinks. No, we, we have no agenda other than we are here to be with each other. Let's just start there. Now what does that look like? And, and so it's just about continuing to lower and to get rid of all those disinviters. It's like, all right, people need to see themselves. People need to feel welcome. So I have people whose sole job is you are, your sole mission, make sure everybody feels welcome. I don't care who they are. Make them feel welcome. If they're standing up by themselves, Sometimes people need that. And I'll provide spaces for people to just go off and be by themselves. But if it seems like they are afraid to come in, no, make sure they feel welcome. Um, so you have those welcomers. And it, it, because relationship work is hard. And people should come to it because it looks so pretty. No, you have to be proactive in making sure people are drawn to the space. I'm still learning the drawing people in. That part I'm still learning. I, The part that I focus on is... Um, individual invitations, mm. being personal. Mm. Um, and I, I like being personal, and I like when people you know, personally invite me to things, and it makes me feel like they thought of me. But a lot of times when you're putting on a big event, you know, it's, it's very hard to ask every single person individually, will you please come and not have it start to sound generic sort of thing. Um, but that's still, it's still something that, um, that I'm learning and that I'm watching a lot of people um, go through. And I think the dynamics has changed because, my goodness, when we, you know, when I first started on like Facebook and MySpace, <laughs> it was, I know, right? Way back machine. It, but you posted, I'm doing something, and it's like, I'm there. Because it was like a bulletin board, and this is, we were used to information. Now it's, I know, but I don't know if they mean me. <laughs> so then it's the, you know, the personal message, then it's the email, then it's the text message, you know what I mean? Hey, are you coming? Um, and that's when I really find, you know, the engagement, the one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so I've still been spending a lot of my time on the one-on-one, the, the, -on -one, the, the personal attention, um, the family dynamic sort of thing, because I, I kind of haven't learned how to do the, the other bit yet. <laughs> so I think one of the things that um, we're trying to consider a lot with Starbase Indy is you go to where those people are. Yeah. Like, you tell them they're welcome, but they don't know if you mean exactly them unless right. you go to where they are. Right, exactly. And showing so, up is major. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So, like, um, if we want... If we want more people of color, Wakanda cons where we should table, mm -hmm. right? Not, not even Capricorn, but Wakanda con. You're kind of putting your time and your money where your mouth is. Exactly. And you're saying, hey, please, you, you, yes. I mean you. <laughs> and again, it's you know once the doors open, mm -hmm. there, there's more space for that. Um, I was going to say, Pinguacon is someone that this last year they do. Um, specifically inclusional spaces for marginalized people really well. Oh, nice. um, they have meetups that are just for people within certain marginalized groups. Even like mental health 
groups and stuff like that. Neat. Yeah. And PenguinCon is growing while other cons shrink. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Something to be there, yeah. Yeah. So who else has a question? I'm happy to repeat questions if you don't want to come to the front room. I'm not an introvert. I have no trouble coming up to the front room. <laughs> <laughs> um, I came to, into Geekdom from a very different... I mean, I'm a cis white female. None of that mattered. I was completely invisible. I took the name Pandora, which I use to this day. Um, it w was gender neutral. Everything was neutral. I loved that. That's gone. Mm. Um, not, I mean, not only can you not only, you can't be invisible anymore. Um, but I found out that part of my invisibility, I still was a lot of a, more of a majority than I thought it was. I mean, I, I thought of myself as a nobody, um, and it's taken several years for me to realize, hey, my, yay, I'm invisible, I st it still wasn't inclusive. So there was a moment for me where I realized there's a whole other world that I'm leaving out in this lovely thing in my head about we're all invisible and color doesn't matter and gender doesn't matter and sexual preference doesn't matter and none of this matters. Hey, something, other people are being left out that aren't me. Um, now maybe you kind of came into it. <laughs> yes, you mentioned you kind of had that from the beginning. Um, but even that, you had an in, you were a writer, um, so you already ha automatically had a little bit of something. To, did you, any of you have a moment where the rest of the world opened up to you? So um, it's interesting you say that, the whole idea of uh, wanting to be invisible, because uh, when I was first started going to these cons, people tried to treat me like I was invisible. Mm -hmm. So it was the whole, oh, well, you know, I just don't see color. And I'm like, I know that probably sounds good in your head. But that whole idea of being seen, it's like, no, 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 I want you to see color. Because I want you to see me. If you're not seeing color, you're not seeing me. And if I'm not seeing you, if you're invisible, I don't get to see you. And I want to see all of you. I want to know all of you. I want, because that's, if, if I'm hanging out with you, I want to be present with every part of you. I mean, I think that's, that's the foundation of relationships. And I can't do that if you're invisible. And I can't do that, and you can't do that with me if you don't see color. So I need you to see all of me. And, and so going into these spaces, I mean, and that was an evolution. Don't get me wrong. Like, this is 2019. I've learned after 20 years, Maurice. Um, and so, the, so it, took, it took a while for me to evolve into, you know what? I carry my culture with me everywhere I go. And if that's the case, I'm not afraid to go into any space. Because everywhere I go, I'm bringing me there. And so then it's just been a matter of, uh, I don't know, finding, finding, finding the places I, be, I belong. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes, it, you know, you're going to find those mean girls clubs. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know what? That's fine for y'all. Y'all do that over there. You seem happy. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell us what you're doing. Go, no, God. I'll be over here. <laughs> and I'll build my own community. Yes. And I'll find my own tribe. Mm -hmm. And my tribe looks up, has a bunch of different colors to them. But they're my, still my tribe. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Um, I did remember mine. Um, uh, it was uh, when my first baby was born. Um, I, 
I was giving it a half-assed chance at everything I wanted to accomplish. I was trying to do things, but I was really half-assed and I wasn't really going after what I, what my dreams were, what my aspirations were. And, and my, my dad, dad was, was looking at her and he said, I wonder what she'll be. And for some odd reason, I went really, really quick, like spontaneous, like without even like filtering or thinking or whatever. I never like spoke back to my dad. I said, she will be whatever she wants to be on this earth. And it was very defensive. <laughs> and I realized what it was, was that I was, you know, listening to any naysayers and kind of like, you know, oh, you can't be anything that you want to be. But for her, I was going to defend it like a mama bear, that she was going to be able to do whatever she wanted in this world. And then reality hit, how the hell do I teach her that when I don't know that? So I realized in that moment, I have to start doing what I dreamt of doing because she's watching me. And I'm the example of you can be anything you want to be. Now go out and do it. It doesn't come to you on the couch. <laughs> it doesn't invite you on a Facebook event. You have to go out there and create it and do it and mold it and you know what I mean and find it yourself. And so from that moment, that was my lightning moment of I have to figure out what I really want and I have to go after it. Because and I do that with um, there's always somebody watching. There's always a little kid watching. So if you're in a space, if you're creating art, if you are you know, at a rally or a protest or you are standing up for yourself, there is a little kid watching. And to be the example for them is kind of what I go with. I think for me, it was a lot tied to the process of coming out for me because when um, up to the point where I was hiding, I didn't notice how many other people were also hiding. And so when I started not hiding anymore, I started noticing all the other people who were sort of on the outside with me mm -hmm. and wanting to make things better for them and to consider them more. And so I think that's really where that started with me. The, the geeky creators, you know, historically and currently, that are coming from groups that are traditionally marginalized groups. Why do you think there's so many people from those groups who are creating in geeky spaces specifically? This was a, it was a question you gave us earlier, and I was really, really thinking about what is it um, about creation, and I really always come back to creation is about trauma, in a sense, because it's problem solving. Our brains are wired to problem solve all the time. And I don't think anybody's like, I had the best childhood ever. <laughs> if you have, please come tell me. I would love to be wrong about this. But I think creators are trying to make sense of their trauma and sharing a way out to the rest of us. This is a bit of my trauma, but I'm going to put it, you know, onto a sci-fi character um, that isn't me, that can have that separation of church and state, basically. Um, but it still connects with us because we're all trying to understand how to deal with our trauma, how to deal with our complications, and we can learn from these creative characters because they're brave enough. Um, I would say that some of it comes down to just trying to imagine different futures. Like, if you are a marginalized person, imagining a future where you're more accepted or things are easier for you, you're already in that speculative space. And so doing more geeky type things kind of comes more naturally, I think. 
Yes, I'm kind of going to split the difference between both your answers. Do it. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, so, like, like I said, I came up as a horror writer. And uh, it's only been in the last year or so that I realized that, you know, when I was writing horror, that was me processing my pain mm -hmm. and my rage. Uh, you know, uh, the injustice around me, the brutality around me. Um, and actually, it wasn't until I was looking through my short story collection, because it, it starts in the past and goes all the way to the future. And, and a lot of the past and to the middle stories were all were an overview of my horror career. And it wasn't until that last third when I start writing stuff taking place in the future. And that's when I realized, oh, now I'm allowing myself space to dream about what could be. Um, and, and I love that. And that's probably why I, I gravitate uh, to a lot to science fiction right now. Um, I think one of my favorite essays I've written, just to establish my deep credibility here, <laughs> um, is that, so there was a, so, I, uh, so part of uh, my own journey is this whole idea of like, what does it mean to be black in America? Um, and I, I came across this article called the, the Negro to Black Conversion Experience. And I said, what if you applied this article to a science fiction character? Worf. Oh. And then watch Worf's evolution through the next generation and even into Deep Space Nine. And he literally follows this progression step by step, to the point where I was convinced, oh, there had to be a black person in that writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> had to be. Because no one could nail it this closely. Um, and so for me, and that was like one of those, obviously, you know which Star Trek I, I ride or die with. <laughs> I have Captain Sisko every single time. But that, that, that show, uh, oh, wasn't it the episode where he was in the 1950s as a sci-fi writer? Mm. Far beyond the star. Thank you. <laughs> I love my people. I love my people. <laughs> that is probably the most pivotal, in terms of geek cre uh, creations, that, I don't know if anything has impacted me and my work as much as that episode mm. of television. The whole idea of being a black science fiction writer in the 50s and not being allowed to tell the stories, but he's, that still doesn't stop him from dreaming. Uh, in fact, I've, uh, I've, I've even been quoting that piece, you're either the dreamer, oh, shit, what was it? <laughs> you're either the dreamer or the dream. But that's what it is for me, is that, that whole idea of, you know what? I'm here to dream. Mm -hmm. And I love that. But, so that's why, sorry, that, that one episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, it was, it, it was everything for me. So first, I want to thank Carol for knowing the episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, when your seat is running the local Star Trek con and people ask you these questions and you have no clue, it's really embarrassing. <laughs> Luckily, I'm always around somebody who can who can answer these questions. So thank you very much. <laughs> I wonder how much of it too is the idea that we can tell stories in science fiction spaces that we might not be able to tell in in straight spaces, right, and you know, non non geeky spaces, mm -hmm. that you know, if we look back at that history of representation, and I'm going to go back to Star Trek for obvious reasons, but um, the the stories of Nichelle Nichols and how she stayed on the show, be specific. I don't know how many of the people in the room might know this story, but uh, she had uh, resigned after the first season, and literally ran into Martin Luther King Jr. at an event and told him she had resigned, and he was like, what are you doing? You've got to go back and not do that. You need to be, we need you in this role where you can see people who look different and you expect it um, because it's science fiction, and you kind of slip those ideas into uh, a place where that representation can show up 
without maybe without being quite so threatening to mainstream culture that that um, well it's just geeky stuff maybe it's you know not as serious is it the fact that um, with science fiction we're not talking about the quote real world does that give us more license to show things uh, and, and analogs and metaphors that we might not get away with otherwise things as they should be and not as they are that yeah. well and there's also a distance provided uh, this illusion of distance between them uh, so I have a, a novel out uh, called Pimp My Airship because I love that title <laughs> yeah. um, and it takes place in Indianapolis and, uh, and it's a steampunk novel um, for a lot of reasons um, and and so it allows me to, it, so as me as a creator, it allows me to talk about issues like oppressive systems and over-policing and uh, the legacies of, of racism when it comes to forming even this city. Those are some pretty big and heady ideas. And those are some hard conversations to have. But I can have them in this story, and I can take you on a ride in, through this story, through this city, through the history of this city, through the eyes of two very different black characters, one a poet, one a, a cultural militant, I'm going to make you sympathize with those characters. I always think still that science fiction is the closest thing we have to mythic stories. Joseph Campbell studied myths, and myths were the way that we not just told stories, but how we, how there were rules for culture. Um, that a story was wrapped into this is why we do things, or this is how you know uh, the world came into being. Everything was based um, around stories and. I always think still that science fiction is the closest thing we have to mythic stories. Um, the way that we used to tell stories and spread information was myths, and science fiction has filled that void um, in that same kind of out-of-worldly um, idea of you have to get out of this and out of your day-to-day -day and kind of crack open a little bit, and science fiction allows you to do that because you have to forget about this and you have to go somewhere else and be something else for a bit so that you can look at things through a different filter. We gatekeep real world stories heavier than we do sci-fi. It used to be said the same with television. I come from a filmmaking background. Um, and so it used to be uh, when I was in film school and when I was on sets, people would be like, oh, you can do that on TV, but you can't do that here. Like TV was this whole other standard. And then I was an intern and I was, or I was a production assistant on television and they had like a major error. And even on that set, they went, it's just television. So there was this, <laughs> like the television was a throwaway. That's the science fiction and mainstream movies kind of debate. It's like, oh, Peshaw, one's television, but we're art, we're movies. Sure, whatever it takes you through to get the day, but people are going to gravitate towards somebody saying something that relates to them, that gives them that sense of belonging and power, and uh, that will be the one that wins. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and there is there is a lot of gatekeeping in publishing, to be frank. Mm. Um, I had a uh, so so Pim actually was one of two books I released this year. The other one was The Usual Suspects, and it's a middle grade detective novel um, featuring two young black boys. And I wrote that novel in 2012. And I knew in 2012 that book was dead on arrival. That book was not going to see the light of day. Um, but flash, uh, uh, flash forward you know, five, six years, all of a sudden, the culture has changed. Mm -hmm. And the conversations we're having have changed. And uh, there's things like the We Need Diverse Books movement has happened. 
And so now where it was, oh, there's no market for that, suddenly there's this recognition of, oh, we can't get enough of that. We need that right now. We need it right now. Uh, so where, so now when my book, when that book goes to, to the market, it sells in like, it sold in like two weeks. But I knew in 2012, it was dead. Uh, and so me being able, I think, it, I think it's a definite mark that I could go and have drinks with an editor and say, I want Black Panther meets Game of Thrones in space. And she says, I will write that check right now. <laughs> so, I, think that, I think that's a mark on, on where we've come and how we drive those changes. Mm -hmm. When all of a sudden done, we drive those changes. Yeah, you gotta be in it to win it. Yeah. So what are you most excited for moving forward as a creator, as creating uh, all the different things that you guys create or that for the, the future of sort of fandom and as it moves sort of farther in the future. So beyond just Rise of Skywalker coming out? <laughs> <laughs> after, after December 20th. Oh, after December 20th, I'm in therapy. But yes. <laughs> so I have no plans. After that one. It's going to be hard. Oh, man. This has been a rough year for things coming to a close. It really is. For geeks. This it is really, really is. Year. It's a year of closure. <laughs> it is. And rebirth. You and think of it as rebirth. New beginnings. So, yes. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. Can I mention a beacon of hope? Please, yes. In 2021. Yeah. The sequel to Black Panther comes. Yes, out. no, that yes. absolutely. Yes. So, yes, that's where I'm putting my dreams. Yes, have they yeah. started filming yet? Because I kind of need to like start watching that to give me hope. So, <laughs> possibly someone has approached me to write a short story Don't in the Black Panther universe for an anthology that's coming out in time to promote the movie. Yes, possibly. All right, then. <laughs> Hypothetically, that may have happened. Right. Okay. Cool beans. <laughs> But don't quote you on it. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Just saying. Nothing recorded. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's just for us, right? Like, right. Nobody else is here. Right. No one heard that. We're good. That's totally fine. Okay. <laughs> we'll get the post. Uh, but it's what uh, what geeky creation we're most excited about. That's the thing. Yeah. What are you excited about going forward in the future of fandom, the future of geeky things, and the right. future of the things you're creating? All of the above. All it's the November, things. so all I can think about is Starbase Indy. That's what I was kind of asking. So, yeah. I'm really excited about Starbase Indy. Starbaseindy.org backslash store. Batch right. sales close tonight. Our t-shirts really great this year. No, I would actually say, uh, so, um, so Gal's Guide, for the second year in a row, we are uh, hosting the O'Hara Trading Academy, and I'm actually really freaking excited about it. Um, we have a room during Starbase Indy, and the idea is what if O'Hara had an academy, what would she teach? So we took her five interests of uh, communications, history, performance, um, navigation, and we created programming and interactive workshops to kind of learn more about what O'Hara would teach to encourage more future O'Huras in the world. Um, hence the standing that you can totally take a selfie with, by the way. Um, and so we even have a certificate of completion uh, if you do four different classes at the academy. Uh, all of this is included with your badge, by the way. Uh, what's the website again, Lisa? Starbaseindy.org. There it is. Okay. <laughs> and, then, uh, yes. and there was a hashtag for this event, and it was SP... What was the hashtag? SP Indy. SP Indy. Sorry. <laughs> or, or see you on the Starbase for the other hashtag. But SP Indy, Spirit in Place, we want to make sure we get
get those out too. Exactly. But you get a certificate of completion, which is totally frameable and adorable and personalized. Um, but I'm super excited about uh, bringing that program, having people come in, um, and seeing it change uh, over time as long as Starbase keeps letting us do it. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think we have like. Oh, we have negative two minutes. No. Oh. <laughs> All right. So we have. While we're giving free plugs, uh, Maurice Broadus is the guest of honor at In Conjunction uh, 2020. Our clear vision for the future. Uh, and, and that website so, is. That website <laughs> is inconjunction.org. I n c o n j u n c t i o n. Next Fourth of July weekend. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you all for being here. And Amanda, do you have any closing remarks? Not really. I just want to thank. I know I was a lot running for that. Not really. I just, I just want to thank everybody for coming. And uh, there are still cookies. There, you know, I got the keys to the building, so we don't have to. Uh, we can hang out and socialize as long as you want. And please give a round of applause to our panelists and moderators. This is. such a great event and I, I learned a lot from them and a lot of really good insightful comments that I'm going to be thinking about for some time to come so thank, thank you so much thank you for being here thank you